Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 123 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Yo. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Howdy. Hey, everybody. I'm doing howdy because we're having a Southern-themed episode. It's true. It's true. Oh, yeah. I caught that. <laughs> uh, Toby, you've been in you've been in the <laughs> South for a while. I bet you're raring to get out. Uh, yeah, two books in a row. Uh, very Southern oriented. You, you know what? I'll let my review speak for itself as to whether or not I'd like to exit the South one day. <laughs> Interesting. Well, speaking of going to the South, um, Dylan and I have just returned from a trip to the East Coast to Woodstock and to Maine. <laughs> From the deep south of Maine. And just returned, meaning we got in, we got to bed at like 2 a.m. last night. I have a story of Bailey's shame that I have to tell the Pejos um, about this oh, trip. Oh, I'm very excited. You haven't even told it to me, so I bet Andrew knows it. <laughs> Actually, I don't think I know. Dylan and I were on American Airlines flying back, and... You know, this is an anti-shout-out for American Airlines. Dylan, would you like to share your feelings on American Airlines? I have none. What is it? The opposite of hate of love is indifference, not hate? Mm-hmm. Because at this point, I've gone beyond hate with American Airlines, and I just refuse to acknowledge they even exist. <laughs> okay. Ooh, so, baby. Ouch. So our first— Well, as a Delta man, yeah. shout-out Atlanta. I'm I'm all for this. <laughs> it's more just I have a bunch of repeated horror stories. And Toby was there. Or we got to a oh, small yeah. town outside of Austin all night with no hotel or anything. And just like kind of had to sleep in the airport yeah. with a bunch of other stranded people catching a car out like a disaster movie. And we never got a refund for those tickets. Also, I'm not saying that all American Airlines uh, planes aren't capable of completing their flights, but... Not not saying that. <laughs> so so this time, you know, we had two lengths of the trip. This was our first time doing a layover with Maggie. The first one, you know, was fine overall. Nothing really bad happened on our first flight. Then we got to Philadelphia and we were going to fly from Philadelphia to L.A. So once we got off the plane, we found out that our flight was two hours delayed. Um, they didn't say why. And then they just, just American. Yeah. And then they just They're, kept pushing the delay. Vibes. So we finally hmm. get on the plane. Everybody is freaking out, especially those like us with children who like, you know, originally a flight at 630 is like perfect timing. But once you get to 9 p.m., not so perfect for children that miss their bedtime and have become feral, such as our child who is doing ballet <laughs> and screaming like, look at me do ballet. So we get on the plane. We're like, finally, we're going to go. I'm sitting in my seat and I'm like, something feels weird about my seat. Dylan, can you take a look at it? And he takes a look and, and we look at it and under the seat cushion, like the seat what would you call it? Seat holder, seat cradle. The net. The net was broken. So I was yeah. basically sitting directly on top of like the um, life jacket <laughs> and it was not very comfortable. Mm-hmm. So as we were going, we're like, oh, should we say something? Oh, the, the lady's coming and she's closing the overhead bins. We're like, oh, sorry, this is just a little uncomfortable. Do you have a pillow? And she's like, oh, no, we don't have a pillow. And then she suddenly went up to the to the captain. And as she went to the captain, me we, the lady in front of us who had a row to herself was like, oh, I'll switch with you. So we switched and now nobody was in that seat. The captain came back and said, this seat is broken. We have to delay the flight so someone can come on what? and look at this seat. And we're like, no, there's nobody sitting in it. Really, I don't want to delay it. I don't want to be a problem. There's like, nope, it has to be. That's protocol. And oh, now no. everybody around you knows that seat is broken. So we have to send somebody to fix it. And so over the like announcement, it's oh. like, we were ready to go, but then there was a broken seat. So we're going to wait here until they came. 
<sighs> it was the worst feeling in the entire Bailey world. Of the two read list podcast <laughs> has complained about her seat. Everybody looked at me like I would have sat on that inflatable vest the entire time and not said anything had I known. I just wanted a pillow. On top of all that, America did not have pillows or blankets. No, it's not your fault. And the fact that no one was sitting on it means that they're yeah. being extra ridiculous. That's their company slogan. Extra ridiculous. American Airlines. <laughs> But I've never directly been the cause of a delay before. Well, didn't even know that was possible. Like, People glared at us and then... Then I just had to pretend I didn't... I've never met this woman in my life. <laughs> you take Maggie and just walk away. Yeah. Have any of you guys had a similar case of shame? Or do you have any book shame to share? Uh, nothing like that has ever happened to me. <laughs> Uh, Bailey, usually I'm like making the case to call you out and be like, yeah, that is whatever you're trying to claim as not shame is shame. (laughs) I don't even think that's close to being shame for you. It's shame on our good enemies, American Airlines. Enemy of the podcast. (laughs) Enemy of the podcast. (laughs) Unless they want to like sponsor us, then that's different. Oh, no, I won't Um, take. I'm going to put a stake (laughs) on the ground. I'm not taking their sponsorship. Yeah, (laughs) I would actively pay money for them not to sponsor us. Anyway, does anybody have any book shame then to talk about? Yes. Ooh, oh, wow. I was going to say no, and no way Toby has any, but here we go. Yes. Um, I have double book shame. <gasps> First of all, I have an update about what Louise and I do in bed. Yeah. Whoa. We read to each other, if you'll remember from an earlier episode. Oh, yeah. We've been reading. You know what you <laughs> did, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we've been reading to each other. It's been really, really fun. Um, we have recently finished uh, Assassin's Apprentice by Robin Hobb, the first in the Farseer trilogy. Strong recommend. It was delightful. It was well-written. It was exciting. Uh, I know many people have read this book, um, and now we've joined the hordes. Um, so anyway, we finished that book, and we have been looking to get book two of the trilogy, and we want to get a physical copy so we can kind of pass it back and forth. So we had a day where we tried to hunt one down, and we went to my first favorite bookshop, which is Eureka Books. Wasn't there. Went to my second favorite bookshop, which was Booklegger in Eureka as well. It wasn't there. And then we went to my third favorite bookshop, which is back in Arcata. This is some very humble specific content but if you know you know um i went to tin can mailman which is a great used bookstore and it was closed and then we went <laughs> to my perennial enemy which i have anti-name dropped before american airlines American freaking airlines. Northtown Books, I don't know if any of you Pedros can identify, but I feel like they have a bad attitude in there. They don't like me for some reason. Usually people at bookstores like me and they don't. They're rude to me. Um, And it was not there, but I was seduced by a copy of Fall of Hyperion, the Hyperion series number two by Dan Simmons. And I I bought it from them. I supported this bookstore that has been rude to me and that I have a on record vendetta against on this very podcast. But did you find the other book? And if you did, if was it at the was it at the Eureka bookstore and you pick it up and said Eureka? <laughs> You know what? Yep, that was pretty I good. Sh- I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that every time. That's how you'll get another bookstore to hate you. <laughs> I'll have my like photo on the, the wall of people who scream Eureka in that store. No, um, we didn't find it after yeah, in all those bookstores. So I don't know. We might have to have them order it for us and then pick it up, which is crazy because it's a very popular book. Royal Assassin by Robin Hobb. Mm, okay. Mm. That's my shame. It's pretty detailed. All right. <laughs> Um, Andrew, you don't. You said you don't have any. None for me. I keeping, ha- it, keeping it shameless. 
I have a little just because it was Emmy Rossum. It was my birthday, guys. <laughs> I only got two books for my birthday this year. <gasps> and to, <sighs> to be clear, these were books I specifically asked for. But usually, I'm you know burdened with my own shame and have like ten new books to add to the list. But this time, I'm just adding uh, the Golden Enclaves, the last in the Scholomance series, and Hellbent, mm-hmm. the second in the Ninth House mm. duology. I don't know. Um, but I think it's a, I think it's meant to be a trilogy. Trilogy. So those are probably ones I won't talk to talk about on the podcast because it's like not the first in the series, and we already covered Ninth House. But yeah, I'm really psyched for those. Andrew got a paperback of Golden Enclaves, which I didn't even know was out yet. Hallelujah, Eureka! Um, so I'm psyched. I'm not shamed. Well, Bailey, don't count yourself out uh, for birthday books yet because I forgot your birthday. <laughs> and so now I can get you some more books for your birthday. Nah. Happy birthday. <laughs> no, I do. I'm sorry. It's fine. <laughs> to your credit, Bailey, it was because you gave us like a birthday list this year that only had those two books on it, whereas sometimes we don't have guidance. And so we just go to your Goodreads and are like, eh, 15 of these, I guess. It's true. Carry those home in a carry-on. Also, Toby, I don't want you to feel bad for forgetting my birthday because my daughter decided to come when she came, share a birthday weekend with her. So, you know, her birthday kind of eclipses mine. So do not worry. Yeah. Well, I didn't text you happy birthday for Maggie either. So (laughs) (laughs) well, she is three and she told me that I am five. So she said, mommy, mommy had a birthday, mommy five. So that's great for me. That's very cute. (laughs) Well, Toby, now that you've told us all of your shame. Let's give you a chance to redeem yourself by talking about a book that you no longer have on your to-read list. Did you read a book this week? Yes, I did read a book this week, Andrew. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. I read Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. Smart, smart. The wise. Flan Man woman. Because now we got Wise Blood. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's your... Logline, Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor's first novel, tells the tragicomic story of Hazel Motes, a young World War II veteran who returns to a fictional mid-sized city in the South and wanders the streets, generally having a bad time, constantly being accused of being a preacher, and eventually founding an anti-religious church he calls the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. Wait, the guy's name's Hazel? Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) How often is he getting... (laughs) accused i guess of being a preacher i don't actually think i've ever been accused of being a okay i'll wait to hear more but but i'm confused i i got that part i got the christianity part of the fake uh preacher part but his name's hazel i have more questions (laughs) no no that's that's my only one (laughs) well yeah yes his name is hazel i didn't get this reading the book which you'll see is a theme of my review. But I didn't get this read in the book, but um, it's supposed to be kind of like a play on words. Like, well, first of all, moat, like the moat in your eye of the famous Bible verse, you know, before you criticize the moat in someone else's eye, pluck out the beam in your own eye. Totally. I'm totally (laughs) familiar with that. Uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tracking, tracking. You're going to require all of your Sunday school learning, if you had any, uh, to follow this book at all. Um, Toby, you know who'd say that? A preacher. <laughs> oh, just saying. Accusing me. <laughs> and then Hazel is supposed to be also like Hayes, like he can't see clearly. Remind me the future connection to the protagonist in my book. Okay, I'll let you know. I'm also a preacher. No, Andrew, stop accusing. <laughs> I'm gonna get one of you one of these days. <laughs> so. Prior to this, um, I'd only ever read the very famous short story by Flannery O'Connor, "A Good Man Is Hard to Find." You guys read that one? 
No, I haven't read that one, Toby. I have, Toby. Staple of English curriculums. It absolutely is. I'm pretty sure I read it in an English class, um, but it's one of those ones where I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was like, oh, this is atmospheric. It's kind of funny. It's super dark. Uh, It's a great story. In fact, I'd only ever heard really of Flannery O'Connor as a short story writer. I didn't even know she wrote novels. I don't really know why I put this book on my list. (laughs) I think I just had... I think I had an impulse where I was like, oh, I really like this short story. I wonder what a full novel would be like. Um, And this may teach me a lesson to be a little bit more careful about (laughs) what I put on my list. I'll say right off, this is not to say that this is a bad book. It could be a bad book, but I'm not saying that because I'm not sure. No spoilers. I'm going to have to tell you, Pejos, that I 100% had no idea what to make of this book. (laughs) At all. So. Didn't you read Thomas Pynchon earlier this year? (laughs) No, I read uh, Infinite Jest. You're always referencing how you read Infinite Jest, Toby. We get it. I should get paid extra devolved to Toby in conversations of like, has anyone here read Infinite Jest? (laughs) Well, now you've ruined it, Dylan. So that paycheck goes away. (laughs) My bonus. Plot wise, um, this is just about Hazel Moats wandering this fictional city uh, after he returns from the war. And he is very grumpy and he just snaps at people over and over that he is not religious and he doesn't believe in Jesus. He's very insistent, often with without prompting <laughs> to these people. They have two reactions. A, they don't care. Or B, they insist that he is religious and that furthermore, he's a preacher. He gets very upset about this and does a lot of symbolic things about it. A few examples, he buys a cheap car. He founds an anti-religious church. He heavily pursues a 15-year-old girl. Wait, what? And a spoiler alert, um, he ends up blinding himself with lie and then he dies. Mm. So that's the plot of the book, is that he wanders around, does a lot of symbolic stuff, uh, blinds himself with lie and dies. That sounds very Christ-like to me. Are you sure he's not a preacher? Thank you, Bailey. (laughs) Um, Hazel would be furious with you. I'm going to try and I think you guys might have an idea of this experience. You know when you're reading like a really symbolism heavy book and you know that it's that kind of book right so you're to put your brain into like symbolism mode and you start to pick them out one by one and if you're kind of getting the book quote unquote you are your hit rate for the symbolism or at least for me is like okay 80 to 90 percent of these symbols i get i can put them together if it's a really difficult book i'm like ooh, i'm like around the 50 percent mark like you know i think i get 50 percent of what's going on here but maybe 50 percent is going over my head or i don't understand the reference does that can you guys identify with that yeah my hit rate is much lower than you but yes it's like the symbolism (laughs) it's like the metaphor of like you're at a batting cage and you miss the first ball, but they're all coming at the same speed. And so you keep missing them over and over again because your rhythm's off. But but eventually you start getting them. Yeah. So Toby's saying that this is a fastball yeah. to the groin of his mind. I don't get that one metaphor. <laughs> I don't get Dylan, could you put it in a basketball metaphor, Bailey? I hate basketball. <laughs> I say my hit rate for this one is maybe 20% oh, or yikes. less. <laughs> um, and and the, the book and the text is just so thick with conversations that barely make sense or uh, strings of occurrences that are so bizarre and hard to understand that you know they must mean something, but I just could not follow them. Um, and this is as a kid who grew up like going to Sunday school. My parents were very involved in the church. I had a religious upbringing. So usually religious stuff 
stuff, I, I at least know the the ideas behind or the symbolism. But um, yeah, I I couldn't get any of it, honestly. And I think that might have something to do with the fact that um, she is referencing a kind of strand of culture and Christianity that I'm not really well aware of, which is 1940s and 50s, Deep South and very conservative Christianity. But I don't know. It, it was very, very confusing, very difficult for me. You know, I felt that way with 100 Years of Solitude, and it just made me feel mm-hmm. stupid. And it's like, everybody yes. loves this book. Why don't I? Why don't I get it? You know? Yeah. So I, I sympathize. And trust me, Pages, if I could have faked it, I would have <laughs> to appear smarter, <laughs> but I really can't. Um, Toby has what we call a dumb blood. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's most of my review. Um, I, will also say, <laughs> I will also say that this is supposed to be a comic novel. There's a written introduction in, in the edition that I read by Flannery O'Connor herself, where she is kind of insisting that it's a funny book. Oh, no. Um, look at my funny book. Hey, <laughs> look at my funny book. Um, it is notorious, of course, that if you have to insist something is funny, of course, that means it is funny. <laughs> so it's my little tiny bit of shade there. I did not find it funny really at all. Um, and I and I'm usually pretty open to seeking out humor in people's books. I really enjoy reading funny stuff. You were raised in a funny family, so you know you're not foreign yes, to it. I was raised funny. <laughs> no. I can imagine like on the book cover it says like from the writer of A Good Man is Hard to Find. This hilarious Rob. It's like mm. You know, I'm reviewing this book uh, in kind of a poking fun way. But to be honest, I don't think I can fairly critique it because it was just whoosh, like 100% over my head to the point where if I was not reading it for the podcast, there's no way I would have finished this book. Absolutely not. (laughs) So like by the end of the book, I was just kind of like listening to sentences not really getting what anything meant beyond the kind of like action by action byline. The one critique I think is fair that I can say about this book is that some of the chapters have a lot of drive and they seem like they're going somewhere. They seem like they kind of hold together better. And some of the chapters totally do not. And when I kind of look this book up, it turns out that this was published in part as several not really connected short stories that Flannery O'Connor then stitched together and put into a short book. So that tracks, mm. <laughs> having read it. Yeah, so it's a short review because I didn't get it. <laughs> I'm going to rate it three stars because that's the most neutral rating I can <laughs> give it because I maybe it's good. I don't know. But yeah, I can't say I recommend it uh, from my perspective. And uh, that's wise blood. <laughs> and you've learned your lesson to be careful what you add to your to-read list. Yes, I think I might comb through the digital list a little bit more after today. Four and a half years in, Toby realized that there are consequences <laughs> to adding things to your to-read list. <sighs> it's true. Andrew, do you have any facts on Flannery? I feel like I'm on a first name basis. I can start by telling you that Flannery is not her first name. Mm-hmm. Boom, boom, dab. Um, okay. <laughs> so, Mary Flannery O'Connor Bailey Ooh. was born on March 25th, 1925 in Savannah, Georgia, and lived only 39 years, passing away in 1964. She uh, was raised by uh, her father and mother. Um, her father was a real estate agent, and they moved when she was pretty young to nearby Milledgeville, Georgia, and then later to um, a farm, which is called Andalusia, where she lived basically the rest of her life with traveling interspersed and some other things that we'll talk about. She was of Irish descent and um, described herself as a child, and this is a quote from O'Connor, as a pigeon-toed child with a receding chin and a you-leave-me-alone-or-I'll-bite-you complex. Same. So, 
Barely. Um, her father passed away when she was quite young of lupus, uh, and then she continued to live in Milledgeville with her her mother, and then again, as I said, relocated to a farm. And that farm, Andalusia Farm, is actually now a museum dedicated to O'Connor's work, in case you ever are in the area. Ooh, road trip. Road trip. She did well in school, uh, went on to go to um, a college which was then called Georgia State College for Women, now called Georgia College and State University. And then she went on to be go to the Iowa Writers Workshop, sort of early on in that, oh. that school's uh, existence or that part of the University of Iowa's existence. And she was, uh, she started as a journalist, but then moved on to doing more creative writing. Uh, and she was there around the same time as Andrew Little, John Crow Ransom, um, and Robert Penn Warren. And I think I mostly only recognize Robert Penn Warren's name from that. Yeah, I don't know any of those names. Robert Penn Warren wrote All the King's Men. Um. Oh. While she was there, she was beginning work on Wise Blood. Uh, she wrote, I think, part of those short stories that uh, Toby was referencing there. And I didn't realize it had been published separately, but that might be why, because it was uh, initially being worked on as like a graduate school project. She also went to Yaddo, which is uh, in Saratoga Springs, New York, sort of close to where I live. And that's when she did a lot of the work on finishing Wise Blood. And so she went right from school right into the pipeline of publishing. Uh, and Wise Blood was published in 1952. She only ended up writing one other novel, which was called The Violent Barrett Away. Other than that, she's known primarily for short stories. So I referenced earlier that she only lived to 39. She actually got a diagnosis of, of lupus herself, um, what her father passed away from, pretty early on in her life in 1952, and knew that she had sort of, based on treatments at the time, sort of a limited time after that. But she lived five years past her initial um, diagnosis estimate uh, and lived until August 3rd, 1964, and then spent the rest of her time in her home base in Andalusia and Milledgeville. But she didn't they didn't hold her back from traveling. She sort of notoriously was happy to travel for to give talks, to give discussions on a wide ranging number of things, in particular her faith. She was a very um, a devoted Catholic, and a lot of her work sort of reflects that, and a lot of her work specifically reflects on sort of leaving behind not even just not having faith, but Protestantism in favor of Catholicism. If you read deeper into some of her work, or even apparently not so deeply sometimes. <laughs> she also maintained a lot of correspondence throughout her life, writing letters to a lot of people, including, and I like this story, having a long-term correspondence with just someone who was a fan of hers who wrote her. She was or a literary clerk in Atlanta, wrote her, and they wrote basically the rest of their lives together. So if we were living in the Aww. same time of her, we could have had an email relationship. Ooh. Friend of the podcast, Flannery O'Connor. She would have followed the Terrellist Instagram account. She really also, this is a, we're sort of pivoting into the, the smaller facts about her life, but she loved birds. You may notice that associated with her is often uh, peacocks. If you have mm -hmm. like, a copy of the complete stories that has a peacock on it, you have uh, you saw her commemorative stamp that was released a few years ago uh, that had peacock feathers on it. Though people were actually kind of mad about that stamp because they sort of like um, <laughs> basically Instagram filtered her. Um, oh no! And took off her glasses. The, uh, one description I read in an article said they like, "What is Betty Crocker doing on my Flannery O'Connor stamp?" <laughs> oh no! Her, it goes back a long time. I mean, I started with peacocks, and she raised about a hundred peafowl, which is a term for both the peacocks and the and the peahens on her farm. But it goes back to when she was a kid. When she was six years old, in fact, she filmed like a little newsreel called "Little Mary O'Connor" with her trained chicken, um, and she had a, a chicken that could walk back backwards. Uh, and she was in this film, and apparently, it was quite popular. Uh, one thing I read <laughs> described as her brush first brush with fame and she was quoted as saying specifically when I was six I had a chicken that walked backwards and I was in the pathy news. I was in it too with the chicken. I was just there to assist the chicken but it was the high point of my life. Everything since has been an anti-climax. <laughs> wow. I love that. One last bird fact. Uh, it was in high school. They uh, 
sort of taught the women, this was a different time, to make uh, Sunday school dresses for themselves at her public school. Um, and O'Connor made one for herself, but also made a full outfit of underwear and clothes to fit her pet duck and brought the duck to school to model it. Man, goals. 1972, which was um, eight years after her life, they published a sort of collected version of all her short stories, which is now quite a popular book and still gets reprinted to this day and it won the national book award in 2009 um, a poll named it the best book ever to have won the national book award was that poll conducted exclusively among peacocks <laughs> yeah peacocks and one pet duck that was fully decked out <laughs> <laughs> i thought this fact would uh, appeal specifically to bailey Ooh. but the flannery o'connor book trail is a series of little free libraries stretching between o'connor's homes in savannah and milledgeville uh, road trip. Road trip. <laughs> I, I wanted to call this out because it keeps showing up on my Twitter in particular, but uh, there have recently sort of been a re-examination of her um, life. It's specifically a, an article in The New Yorker came out recently that like questions how uh, racist Flannery O'Connor might have been. Um, and I don't want to mm. get into that in particular because, A, I read the article, but it was like four months ago. I don't remember. Um, and it's quite long. And I think it's more for it's not sort of conclusive. It's more like up to how you read it. So examine her legacy how you will and, and do your own investigation on that. I'm here mostly to talk about ducks and chickens. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is basically what I have on uh, Flannery O'Connor. There's definitely more about her, but um, I say we, we choose to remember her based on her ducks and chickens. <laughs> <laughs> well, that those were outstanding facts. Excellent job, Andrew, and amazing review, Toby. Give him a flan. <laughs> uh, thank you. So that is Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor, Three Confused Stars. <laughs> mm -hmm. Bailey, yes. it's bro it's broiling outside. It's hot. It is the season of summer. Did you read a book this week? <laughs> that, Transition. <laughs> that, nailed it. Um I did read a book this week, and it has the word summer in the title. Wow, what a coincidence. I read the book Summer... Transition. <laughs> I read the book Summer Suns, S-O-N-S, by Lee Mandelo. Lee, Lee, Lee. I had an entire two weeks to look up the lyrics to Boys of Summer, and I didn't. Sons of so summer. summer have gone. There you go. I can't read you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, this... <laughs> Just don't think of it. Just, it's stuck in my head and I'm trying to move on. The reason why I picked it out of the Little Free Library when I saw it is that it has been praised by, I think, Goodreads. It was on a list of potential top horror books when it came out, top Ooh. debut books, um, and also an LGBTQIA list. So I was excited. Horror. Nice. Debut, LGBT, sounds like my jam. So the book follows a protagonist named Andrew. His what? Name. <gasps> Another book about an Andrew. But his <laughs> last name is Blur, which kind of reminds me of... Oh, uh, Hazel Moats? Yeah. Well, or Haze. Yeah. You yeah, know, right. it's kind of, you know, the blurry <laughs> yeah. Haze. So, the Furious Mr. Hazel. There you go. Andrew Blur is um, an incoming grad student at... Vanderbilt University in heard Nashville. Of it. Heard of it? I mean, yeah, I've heard of it. I know it's in Nashville. <laughs> he is a starting school following his best friend, longtime best friend, adopted brother, lover, question mark, whose name is Eddie. And Eddie passed away um, about six months before. And Eddie died of apparent suicide, but Andrew doesn't believe it. So Andrew hasn't even read this book, Bailey. <laughs> so long ago it was all a blur <laughs> <laughs> so 
So they were planning on, you know, they went to college together and they were planning on attending school together at Vanderbilt. They both got in, but then Eddie got in first and started to do some research into Southern Gothic horror stories and was like, just wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Andrew. And then he dies of apparent suicide and Andrew is very suspicious. So he joins in the program and sets out to find out what happened to Eddie and is it connected to the mysterious thing that happened to them in the caverns of Tennessee? Well, you got to start with the caverns. Come on, guys. (laughs) I should also say this is not a spoiler. This is in the first chapter that Andrew sees dead people. And so did Eddie after after what happened in the caverns. I'm not going to say what happened in the caverns, but you know. um, Well, I think it was probably something bad. (laughs) (laughs) So now that Eddie has passed, Andrew is haunted by... Eddie. So the haunt keeps following him and sort of maybe trying to lead him in the right direction, maybe endangering him. Hard to say. So that is the concept of the book. When you Sorry, when you say uh, the haunt, you mean his friend Eddie is following him around? Yes. Like, well, lurking? It's, okay. it's like he will suddenly appear. Like if he's driving Eddie's car, suddenly somebody will be next to him in the car. And it's it's the creepy haunt mm-hmm. that like smells like earth and has skeletal hands and that sort of thing. Sounds fun. Sounds like me. Let's go with orcs and elves right from the beginning. Um, my elves, as you said, Toby, this I thought it was a really great premise. This seems like a really fun book. It has a lot of stuff going that appeals to me, like dark academia and top of everything else. I haven't read that much about like a PhD program, aside from Bunny by Mona mm. Awad. Shout out to that book. Very good. The, so I was excited to to read about it. Yes, Dylan? The scariest thing of all, a post-grad degree. Defending your th- <laughs> dissertation. Student dead. <laughs> and as somebody who grew up in New England and now lives in California, I feel like I know those worlds pretty well, but I don't know much about the South. And I know that, like, especially in Appalachia, there's a lot of these, like, creepy history ghost stories, especially, and this is an element of the, of the book, like the fact that there were plantations there and now the legacy, the inheritance is still there, the people whose families mm-hmm. own the plantations or who perhaps were enslaved on the plantations. Um, so this is all solid. I'm into it. Um, the opening chapter was interesting in that it, it ends with the haunt, as I mentioned before. There also are a lot of themes explored that aren't often explored in, in dark academia, such as how race comes into it, especially in this esteemed, you know, Southern university where like white scholars are given preference over black scholars Mm. in this case. Also class. Obviously, I mentioned the inheritance, but part of it is who has the money and influence and why do they have it? And they likely have it because of their family, but do they deserve it and do they even want it? So these are all good themes. Thus ends my elves. I I had a feeling. (laughs) Yeah, you tip your hand (laughs) sometimes with that bail. (laughs) Before I get into my orcs, I need to give two caveats. Number one, I I should say, okay, and the reason why I'm giving these caveats is that people love this book. They really like it, and you may really like it. Most people gave it four stars on Goodreads. This is just my opinion, and I really wanted to like this book. I want to be clear up front. I'm already feeling guilty. I feel like it's not your intention but I always feel like this is like you're building up to the beat drop. I get so excited when you do your caveats. I'm like, oh yeah, here we go. All right. Number one caveat. Obviously, I had to read this on a deadline. I had to read this for the podcast. So when I say an 
orc I had was that it felt repetitive and the pace was slow. Maybe I wouldn't have felt that way if I didn't have to get through all the pages. Do you know yeah. what I mean? She would have read it earlier, Fair. but some terrible person on our plane got it delayed by complaining about their seat. <laughs> the <laughs> other caveat is that trigger warning, if... You are stressed out by people not going to class or not doing your homework. You will not like this book. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most Bailey thing you've ever said on the podcast. But also, I sort of relate. I got really stressed out reading Ninth House when she keeps missing class. (laughs) How did you guys finish Harry Potter? (laughs) No, okay, so... I still have stress dreams where I wake up and I haven't done the, the work or I, I missed class and I run into my teacher, that kind of thing. I still have that. And this character, wow. Andrew, just does not care. He does not show up. <laughs> he, like, he skips orientation. He barely goes to class. His PhD mentor, as well as his faculty mentor, are like, hey... you've missed three emails from me. Hey, are you going to do this assignment? Hey, it drove me insane. Uh, I found it very stressful (laughs) and it made me really dislike this man. But related to that, there's also, he. Andrew is a very, it feels weird to say Andrew. Andrew is not an active protagonist. He is really in his grief and his depression, but it's like all of the things are there and he doesn't explore them. For example, Eddie leaves you know, the, the the person he's trying to figure out how he died, he leaves a stack mm-hmm. of papers with his research that like ostensibly would have some answers, if not clues. Andrew refuses to read them and hides them in a closet and considers throwing them out the window. And it's like, okay. just just read these papers. I know you're going to read these papers in 200 pages. Why, why aren't you yeah. just going to read the papers? Mm-hmm. Just meet with your faculty advisor. Just meet with this person, blah, blah, blah. So then you become very ahead of the protagonist very quickly, which I think makes the book even slower. Um, You're like, let's get to it. I kind of know, I know what the twist is. Let's go. You're being slow and you're driving me crazy that people have to literally force you into taking any action. Also, a disappointment for me was there wasn't enough of the Southern Gothic, the Southern horror stories, which I think was the big draw of the book to me. I, again, as somebody who lived in New England and California, don't know a lot about it. So I wanted more and we only got a little bit of that in the third act. And I wanted more, like at some point they reference that a common trope is, you know, selling your soul to the devil sort of. In, in that area, they don't reference that until the third act. I'm like, I want more of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, mm. But at the same time, Mandelo <laughs> spends a lot of time describing the coffee that Andrew has every day, describing the race. Um, he's often, instead of doing his homework, racing fast cars with hot boys. Very frustrating. He should be doing his homework. Mm. Um, <laughs> I agree on the coffee one. Racing fast cars with hot boys sounds like it merits some page count. <laughs> And, you know, this is not to say, like, I'm not going to be the person that's like, this book is bad because the main character is not likable. The main character is not likable, but that's not why he's bad. It's bad because he doesn't make any active decisions. Another thing I wanted to say, I guess I don't want to pile on, so this will be my last orc, is that the writing itself, it felt it felt like a debut novel in that there was mm. a lot of really heavy-handed description, a lot of metaphors and symbolism, and, <laughs> which I haven't seen in a long time, a lot of like, what do you call it? Like a $5 word, like very intense vocabulary that I don't, I'd never seen before and I had to look up, which was annoying to me. That's not what I want in my gothic horror fiction. So, so as an example, I'm going to read you know, some sentences to get a sense. I just had found myself rereading and rereading, trying to understand the geography of where these people were in relation to each other, what exactly was happening. And I, I didn't, 
I don't know. I found it confusing. There's a thing. A shipper rope mm-hmm. is a chest of drawers. I had to took me a while to learn that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so this is just page 26. The fingers that reached up to touch his face streaked his skin wet, nose to lip. He was speaking but couldn't hear himself. All he heard was a hissing sibilance that plugged up his ears. The fingers pushed into his open mouth and the iron poison of blood coated his taste buds. He gagged. The hiss rose to a chatter. The invasive hand dipped from his mouth, skated to his torn shirt and found the open edges of his flesh, pushed inside with questing horrible tenderness, put him on his back. Good boy, he heard in his head with the force of a rung bell. It seems like violent and erotic, but I don't understand what exactly is happening. And it's very confusing Mm -hmm. to me. If you pare this book down and just look at the basic story elements, the basic world, I think it could be a really good movie. As a reading experience, I I did not enjoy it. So I have to give it two stars and I'm very sorry. Please don't hate me. But Andrew, um, I know you're going to make me feel bad. Um, could you have any facts on Lee Mandelo, <laughs> who I'm sure I'm sure is a lovely person? I do have some facts on Lee Mandelo, not as many as you might want. We've hit Lee Mandelo in the part of his career pre-Wikipedia page. So um, a lot of this is based on interview and their own about section on their website. But luckily, that's pretty flushed out. So I think we have a, a fair amount of facts to deal with here. Lee Mandelo is a writer, critic, and occasional editor whose field of interest includes speculative and queer fiction, especially when the two coincide. His debut novel, Summer Suns, which has been featured in publications ranging from NPR to the Chicago Review of Books, is a contemporary Southern Gothic dealing with queer masculinity, fast cars, and ugly inheritances. Two novellas, Feed Them Silence and The Woods All Black, are forthcoming in 2023 and 2024, respectively. Other work can be found in magazines such as Tor.com, Uncanny, and Nightmare, and Mandelo has also been a past nominee for awards including the Nebula, Lambda, and Hugo. Aside from stints Hmm. overseas learning to speak Scouse, that means that they went to Liverpool. Mandelo has spent his life ranging across Kentucky, currently living in Louisville, and pursuing a PhD from the University of Kentucky. I believe it's pronounced Louisville. I'm fine with what I said. (laughs) Some more, in case that wasn't quite enough. I'm going to keep going right from his website. Growing up in Bullitt County, Kentucky, alongside the evolution of the internet, Lee spent his early years hunting down questionable fan subs on dial-up, reading all the gay comics he could find, and experimenting with fashion ranging from gender-ambiguous goth to sporty femboy. As they began writing the column Queering SFF for Tor.com in 2010 at the age of 19, more than a decade later, he's best described as a gender non-conforming guy, but gender queer is still a word that has a warm place in his heart. Splitting time between prose work, teaching courses and on gender and power, and engaging with as many queer materials possible from contemporary visual art to horny fan fiction, their daily life in Louisville involves a fair amount of reading, induced eye strain. While he enjoys bigger cities like Chicago as often as possible for the culture, there's something about Kentucky that always pulls him back. Chosen family, or the trees and hills, or the vibrant small communities of writers, or all of the above. Favorite hobbies include cooking, petting dogs, taking too many photos, and lifting weights, plus attending local drag shows and the LGBTQ plus community events. Seems like a lovely person. I'm sorry. Yeah, how dare you? How dare you have an honest reaction to their book? (laughs) So uh, to fill out using still uh, Lee's words, I'm going to go to an interview that they gave with horror.org. A little bit about sort of background in writing, like writing routine. Here's a question for Lee. What inspired you to start writing? 
Stories have compelled me and fascinated me for as long as I can remember. There might not be an answer to the question of what inspired me to start writing in general, it's just always been there something as something important to me. With specific projects though, for example Summer Suns, usually I start with a single scene or emotion or character that commands my attention. I'm not a write daily guy. I feel that expectation tends to create burnout and doesn't leave artists enough time to reflect or grow, but I do journal regularly. So I'll note down the seeds of ideas over time and see if they start to germinate into something bigger. What was it about the horror genre that drew you to it? Anything that provokes strong feeling, I'm into that. And horror, alongside erotica, devotes itself so well to powerful bodily emotions. As a weird gay child of the 90s, I was probably destined to love horror. There was such a huge boom in scary books, movies, and so on by LGBTQ plus artists during that, going on during that decade. Unsurprisingly, given things like the HIV AIDS epidemic, alongside government abandonment and surging social persecution through the late 80s and onward. I didn't have that context as a kid, but I had the materials, and they left a strong impression on me. Looking back now, I feel like being drawn to horror, a place where stories about being an outsider and also experiencing extreme dread and fear could be made safe somehow to explore in their own strange way was only natural. And one last thing, there's more to this interview, so you can look it up if you're interested. What is one piece of advice you would give horror authors today? Chase your bliss and write whatever weird bleep gets your heart pumping. Draw inspiration from games, movies, <laughs> poetry, novels, the way a tree shadow falls wrong on your walk home at night. I'd love to see more strange queer horror stories from across the globe. Ooh, I, I like that tree shadow Ooh. idea. That's cool. Oh, actually, before we finish, one more thing. He says some of his favorite LGBTQ characters in horror, and I thought I'd throw them in there for you. I've been thinking about some of the gothic classics lately, like Eleanor and and Theodora in Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. I agree with that. Or the unnamed narrator and Mrs. Danvers mm. in Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Yeah. And hey, though it's been years and years since then, I'll never entirely forget being a young teenager first encountering the Corinthian in Sandman in the terror horny response he provoked. Oh. Or along those lines, the villainous Dr. Moraki of the early 80s manga Yami no Matsue. I thought I'd throw that in there because I nice. know some of you have read Sandman and also a Rebecca shout out. There you go. Yes. Always here for a Rebecca shout out. Those are excellent facts, Andrew. They only make me feel very guilty. But yes, I'm so sorry, Lee. Summer Suns by Lee Mandelo, two stars. I believe a new person has a game today, not <gasps> Andrew. Welcome, Lee Mandelo. <laughs> <laughs> the game is Are You a Preacher? Hosted by Toby. <laughs> is that the game? Toby, please let that be the game. <laughs> the game is I accuse you of being a preacher, and I win. The lights go out. The town people come out. One of them is a preacher. <laughs> Yes, it is my turn to create a game. I'm calling this game, A Good Flan is Hard to Find. Oh. Going to be very simple. Um, It is only going to be Andrew versus Bailey because I don't have that many questions or whatever they are. Sorry, Dylan. But it's going to be very simple. I'm going to name a fictional food from a book. And you're going to tell me what book or book series it's from. And if possible, for an extra point, you're going to tell me what the food is. Okay. Makes sense? This is exciting. It's fictional food. It's not real food. No, it can't hurt you, Bales. Okay. How do we buzz in? You're going to say flan. I love it. <laughs> okay. Okay, here we go. Lembus bread. Flan. Andrew. Uh, it is from the Lord of the Rings series. It's gifted by Galadriel and the forest elves to the fellowship as they leave um, the forest. And it is mm-hmm. a piece of sort of pita-like bread that a small bite is enough to nourish you for the full day and one time Pippin eats like five. Okay, nerd. Mm. <laughs> Good try, but it's actually dragon toast. Um, no, that's correct. Um, <laughs> Zero points. Excellent. So remember, these start easy and get harder. Apparently that one was hard for Bailey, so uh-oh. Oh no. Number two. Birdie bots every flavor Flans. beans. Flans. 
Bailey. This is from the Harry Potter series. It is uh, jelly beans that you taste and they could have any flavor from cherry to earwax. Excellent. Excellent job. All right. Two to two. Lickable wallpaper. Fun. Oh, yeah. Andrew. That is from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. Excellent. And it's, I believe it's lickable wallpaper that you can lick and it tastes like food. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. that's correct. That's correct. You really could have thrown some points away there, but you saved yourself. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't know that I needed to describe that one, but I'm glad I did. This is actually a real food, but can you name where it's from? Turkish Delight. Flan. Flan. Bailey? I knew as soon as you introduced this game that this would be on here. This is mm-hmm. from the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's something that mm-hmm. seems delicious, but is not delicious. It is like a little sort of cake. Everybody in the book loves it, but really it tastes like soap. Mm-hmm. It's like jelly. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, you really want to try it because it's so good that Edmund like betrays his family I know. for it. <laughs> <laughs> it made me realize that Turkish Delight isn't that delicious. He just really hates his family. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to a little bit more obscure. Great Hall Cake. Flan? Yes, Bailey. Is it Harry Potter series? No. Okay. Flan. Andrew? Is it from Redwall? Yes, yes, it is. Uh... <laughs> you have no idea what's I mean, I imagine it's like some sort of nut-based flour um, made for a celebration. Uh, it's actually green sap milk sponge with ginger poached apples and honeyed cream. Sounds pretty good, so, actually. Uh, does, next time. That's pretty good, actually. Yeah. Well, a lot of the food in there is really good. That is 80% of the Red Wall books. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. All right. Frob Scottle. Mm. Flan? Andrew? I'm going to say it's from a Roald Dahl book, um, but I'm going mm-hmm. to guess which one it's from. Frob Scottle. Is it from Matilda? No, it wouldn't be from Matilda. Okay, Matilda's my guess, but I feel no. unhappy about it. Flan, I'm going to guess the BFG. That's correct. Yes! 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 Um, It's something that giants eat. Eh, not specific enough, and because they also eat humans. Oh. Um, Is this, can I take a guess? Um, Is this their yeah, weird Dylan. soda thingy that they drink all the time? Yes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. It's like the most delicious soda ever. And I believe uh, when the BFG drinks it, he's so happy that his ears wiggle enough that he flies. Oh, yeah. Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster. Flan. Bailey. I'm going to guess Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's correct. I was going to guess that too. It's, it's like a gusher, but in space. <laughs> no. Andrew, can you steal? Is that also a soda? No. It is a cocktail. We're coming to the What's end the here. Score? It is six to five. Bailey. Ooh. Okay. October ale. Uh, uh, flan? Is Andrew? it a drink in the Lager Queen of Minnesota? Ooh. No. I would have guessed that. Too. It is not. Um, is it from Blueberries for Sal? <laughs> no, you fools. It's also from Redwall. Uh, and it's October uh, ale. You can't, you can't keep doing Redwall for everything. <laughs> I just didn't think there'd be a second Redwall. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, no. No one ever All thinks right. there's going to be a second red wall. <laughs> there's two more. Here we go. So still, Bailey's still in a lead by one point. It's anybody's game. Subtraction stew. Flan? Mm-hmm. The Witches by Roald Dahl? Nope. Ooh. Think about what? the name as a kind of play on words. Flan again? Sure, Bailey. Oh, Fan- <laughs> the Phantom Tollbooth? <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> 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 I'm the one who's in charge of the game. Any amount of cheating is possible. 
I was it's taking a, my a, time. I was really thinking about it. I haven't read the book, so I don't think I would have gotten it. But I'm still upset that Bailey gets a point. Fair enough. It's a soup. It's a soup that makes you smaller. Uh, no, it's described as uh, you can't describe what it tastes like, but the more you eat, the hungrier you get. Ooh. Subtraction stew. All right, here we go. Final question. I'm furious. Hands over your buzzers. Deeper and never turnip and tater and beetroot pie. Fun. Yes. Uh, it's also from Redwall, and it's that pie with those ingredients. <laughs> That's correct. And it's a pie with those yes, ingredients. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, this is unprecedented. It's an exact tie, seven to well, seven. Well, Bailey did so get two guys... cuts at one, so I think we ba- I basically can agree that I won. Well, but you got okay, you got the enough. hint, and I didn't, so we Ooh, can agree that Andrew it's... is the winner. He's correct. That was a great game. That was really fun, Toby. Thank you, Toby. That was a really fun game, even though I won. Um, you also Dylan. got the hint before you. <laughs> got two cuts at an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Dylan, now is the time for you to shine. Now is the time for you to choose books at random from our shelf to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The The Choosening. Well, Toby, I know that The Choosening Mm -hmm. lately has stranded you in the South. So do you try to make your escape? Do you break out of the South and take a horse and keep riding it and following it all the way up to the beach only to reach New York City and find the Statue of Liberty buried in the sand only to reveal that you've huh? actually they destroyed it all because you have number 29, Planet of the Apes by Pierre Boulle. Oh. I also have forgot that I put this one on my list. So You put you put this on the list because Charlie Sanders, one of our guests, um, recommended it to you and you're like, I, I'll read that. Oh, that was like four yeah. years ago. <laughs> Yeah, that was a long time ago. All right, Charlie, I know that you're listening right now because you listen every single time this one, this podcast comes out, I'm sure. But yeah, I'm very excited uh, to read this book. I think it'll be really interesting. I love reading these like books that people don't know are books. Yeah. Like obviously people know the movie and that people are like, oh, it's a book. But and, yeah, I'm intrigued. Well, Bailey, you already know what you're chosen for, right? No. Because it has been talked about for millennia, for generations have passed down the stale of what a book was chosen for Bailey. Uh-oh. As she is our number 78, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Okay. Oh. Has anybody read this? No, I watched the animated movie. <laughs> Only the chosen one was supposed to have read it. <laughs> I, okay, this is my experience with this book. My mom gave it to me, I think, when I graduated high school. I think it was really popular mm-hmm. maybe in the 80s. I don't know, but I believe, like, she put a quote in my yearbook from the book. I think the book has a lot of like inspirational things. Maybe it's about religion. I don't Mm. know. Getting heavy, the alchemist vibes. Yeah, maybe. I was going to say, is it like the alchemist? Perhaps. Maybe it'll have symbolism. Maybe he's a preacher. I don't know. Are you a preacher? You have to tell me legally if you are. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that means in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. And Andrew is reading This Is How You Lose the Time War by... Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone. Woot woot. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you're a preacher, I know you are, don't deny it. Go on to iTunes uh, or your podcast of choice and rate us five stars. That really helps the visibility of the podcast. And um, if you're a preacher, don't deny it. <laughs> Go ahead and write a review as well. Thanks. And if you're out on the street having a busy day of accusing people of being preachers and you want to take a little break from doing that, tell some people you see on the street, some people in your local, I don't know, Rite Aid, uh, to check out this podcast because word of mouth is uh, one of our best ways of finding new listeners. And 
Sometimes you got to take a break from just accusing people of being men of God. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song, No Thanks to American Airlines. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.